Welcome to this episode of Disease Du Jour on the topic of tick-borne diseases in horses. The Disease Du Jour podcast is brought to you in 2020 by Merck Animal Health. Our guest for this episode is Thomas Divers, DVM, diplomat of the American College of Veterinary Internal Medicine and the American College of Veterinary Emergency and Critical Care. Dr. Divers, who was honored as an AAEP Distinguished Educator, is the Rudolph and Catherine Steffen Professor of Veterinary Medicine, Section of Large Animal Medicine at Cornell University College of Veterinary Medicine. Thank you, Dr. Divers, for joining us today on Disease Du Jour to talk about tick-borne diseases in horses. Well, thank you, Kimberly, for inviting me to do this. Well, we're going to jump right in. And why are tick-borne diseases important for veterinarians and to be able to recognize in horses? I'll try to keep this simple today, uh, which I like to do. Simple is good. But I think the answer to that question is that uh, ticks are spreading. Uh, that's well uh, identified in many uh, journals and publications. So ticks are spreading throughout uh, North America. And with the spread of ticks, they're carrying the uh, uh, pathogens uh, to horses. And so that's why uh, ticks have become a major problem in equine medicine. And what tick-borne diseases are the most important for horse veterinarians to recognize and be able to handle? Yeah, that'd be the uh, focus of this podcast uh, from my perspective, and that would be uh, equine Lyme disease and equine anaplasmosis. And uh, so I'd like to start by discussing those two at the end of this uh, podcast. I'll mention some other known diseases that are tick-borne and some potential uh, diseases that we know ticks are carrying certain organisms and just waiting for clinical cases to occur. And so I'll start with the uh, Lyme disease and anaplasmosis. Now those two um, uh, organisms, which would be Borrelia burgdorferi for the Lyme disease and anaplasma phagocytophilia for anaplasmosis, both of those are carried by, mostly by the black-legged ticks, uh, the exodes ticks. And there is a geographic predisposition certainly to those infections and disease which would be the Northeast going all the way down to at least North Carolina to the mid-Atlantic area. And uh, the uh, Northern central part of the US, Minnesota, Wisconsin. But as I mentioned, uh, we're seeing cases almost in all states now of the US. Now, some of that may be related to horses being transported and certainly that's a possibility, but there's no doubt these ticks are spread and with the spread of ticks, they're carrying these infectious uh, agents. Um, now, I want to then go into uh, uh, how do we diagnose and what are the clinical signs associated with Lyme disease? Now, the clinical signs, uh, that uh, has been very difficult to really get a good handle on that. And I've ended the end of my career, professional career here, and I'm uh, apologetic that we don't know more about the of a Borrelia burgdorferi infection in horses. But what we do know is there are proven syndromes, uh, which include uh, Lyme uveitis, uh, uh, pseudolymphoma, which is a, a, a nodular lesion of the skin, which looks like cutaneous lymphoma, but it's actually associated with a tick bite and the organism itself, and neuroborreliosis, which I'll mention. 
Now, the most common thing recognized by practitioners would be lameness, stiffness of all four limbs without remarkable joint swelling, which would be really different than Lyme disease in humans, where there's lameness with joint swelling, usually just one limb uh, affected in humans at a time, but it could be both, and often the knees are involved. But in horses that are diagnosed, and I say diagnosed with uh, Lyme disease uh, lameness, it's often reported to be all four limbs and without uh, noticeable uh, swelling of the joints itself. Any other clinical syndrome, which has been recognized by practitioners, but is yet to be really completely proven is a hyperesthesia, behavior changes, uh, et cetera, associated with Borrelia burgdorf infection. Now I have no doubt that those are all probably syndromes with the equine Lyme disease, but uh, I just wanted to let people know that those are not as well proven as some of the other less common ones that practitioners see, which is the neurobrelliosis, the pseudolymphoma, and the Lyme uveitis. So we have a lot of work to do there to try to decide how many of these horses that are lame and stiff actually have Lyme disease. It makes it very difficult to confirm a diagnosis when the exposure rate is so high in certain areas of the U.S., I mean, the seroprevalence in the Northeast can be as high as 60 or 65% in some areas. So horses are getting infected. There is no doubt about that with Borrelia burgdorferi and infections are common and the infections uh, incidents are increasing. Uh, I think there's a recent study from uh, Virginia Tech uh, looking at horses in ambulatory practice there at, uh, at Virginia Tech where they did seroprevalence of those horses and about one third of the horses they drew blood samples on, these were cl mostly clinically normal horses, I presume, about one third of the horses had been exposed to Borrelia burgdorferi. So that makes uh, the confirmation of lameness and hyperesthesia and behavioral changes, it makes it difficult to do. I have no doubt that there are cases of that, but how many, I just don't have a really good handle on that and I wish we did. And there's a lot of work to be done in that area. Uh, as far as the, uh, how would you go about diagnosing Lyme disease? Well, number one, you're probably going to look for it in the areas of North America that have a fair, that have the exodes ticks. And if exodes ticks are there, these are the hard shell ticks. Uh, if the exodes ticks are there, then probably the organism's going to be there. And so if you're practicing in an area that has exodes ticks, you, I would expect you can have horses that get infected. And so to start with, you uh, check antibody and the antibody is going to be positive. And that's just going to tell you that horse has been exposed to the organism. And then to confirm the diagnosis, that gets a little bit trickier because to prove it, you really almost need to find the organism in the site uh, that's diseased. For example, we have done this several times, but it's, uh, you know, we just haven't done it enough to have to make any strong statements about it. But horses that are lame in all four limbs and they're antibody positive and we rule out other diseases. That's very important too. Before you jump on the diagnosis of Lyme disease, since the seroprevalence is so high, make sure you rule out other diseases. Now that applies to the lame horses, that applies to neurologic horses, that applies to uveitis cases, all the different syndromes that have been reported associated with uh, Borrelia burgdorferi infection. 
So make sure you rule out other, other diseases. And some of the lame horses, we have actually done synovial biopsies as outpatients. And usually the fetlock's a good place to do that. It's fairly simple and put a little pressure up on the fetlock, restrict uh, activity for a couple of days. And so far we haven't had any problem. And what we do with those synovial biopsies, we do PCR to find the DNA of the organism to determine that the organism is actually present at the site of what we believe is the diseased tissue. And also we would do histopathology. And the histopathology we see, regardless of whether it's in the uh, synovial membranes, or whether it's in the skin with a pseudolymphoma, or whether it's in our neurobreliosis cases, the, uh, what we typically see on histopathology is a lymphocytic, plasmacytic type reaction, although there is some neutrophilic reactions too, particularly in the uh, 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 Lyme neurobreliosis cases, those horses with central nervous system science. And so we wanna rule out other diseases, prove the horse has been exposed, try to find the antigen if we can. Then the best place to find the antigen, actually easiest is in some ways, is the horses with uveitis. I might mention that uh, equine uveitis is so common, uh, Lyme uveitis is probably not particularly common, but when we see it, it's often both eyes and it's very aggressive and it's, uh, uh, it's uh, highly uh, destructive disease. But if you collect some fluid from the eye, now a lot of people are reluctant to do that, but if you collect some fluid from the eye, you can actually find the organism right within the fluid of the eye. And so you don't even need to do a PCR. I mean, we do to prove that that's the organism we're seeing, but actually that's one place you can find the organism is right in the fluid of the eye if they have uveitis. Now, the other thing that has been used to confirm the diagnosis of Lyme disease, regardless of what syndrome it is, is response to therapy, but that is confusing in a horse because the drugs we mostly use are the tetracycline drugs, tetracycline, minocycline, doxycycline. And those drugs are known to have anti-inflammatory effects. Yeah. And when I first started following Lyme disease back in 1999, equine Lyme disease, over a period of two or three years, I had maybe 10 phone calls from uh, practitioners saying, oh, I diagnosed a case of Lyme disease. I said, oh, how'd you do that? And they were said, well, it's a horse that was lame in all four limbs. We couldn't find anything else wrong with it. So we put on doxycycline and it got better. And I was like, okay, did you test for antibody? And they were like, yeah, we did. It was negative. So that in itself is really unusual. So that is actually when I started thinking about maybe these drugs have anti-inflammatory properties. And so then Lisa Fortier, who's here at Cornell, she actually did some work and published to show that particularly on synovial membranes that are inflamed, doxycycline can have a fairly prominent anti-inflammatory effect. And so a uh, couple words about the neurobreliosis. We are seeing more cases of that now. It, it also is difficult to confirm, but what we typically see is horses with behavior problems, uh, spinal cord ataxia, and maybe some cranial nerve signs. And they may respond to doxycycline, tetracyclines, but uh, the prognosis on those horses is actually with neurobreliosis has actually been uh, guarded too poor. The CSF findings, if you collect CSF, it's usually abnormal as an increased white count. It can be either lymphocytic or it can be neutrophilic. 
And um, we rule out other diseases once again, EPM, uh, other things that may cause spinal cord disease, herpes, obviously, and things like that. Uh, the confirmation of those uh, cases, unfortunately, is usually on postmortem. And we have had enough cases now that we feel like that the most uh, dramatic lesion we find is a thickening of the dura, which is covering the uh, spinal cord. And for that, that reason, uh, the thickening of the dura, I think, inflames the nerve roots that are coming out, if that makes sense. So as the nerve roots come through the dura, they also inflame. And that's why we do see a lot of hyperesthesia and obvious pain, what's called root signature syndrome, where the horse may stand with one leg out front of the other leg, and he may paw a little bit and then switch to the other front leg. And so that's probably because those nerve roots are being involved. And uh, the other thing I might mention about the neurobrelliosis syndrome is that quite a few of the cases that we have confirmed have been associated with an immunodeficiency. It's uh, called common variable immunodeficiency syndrome. It's a syndrome of adult horses where they develop a B cell uh, immunodeficiency and have low IgG. Now, the tricky thing here is that those horses can be seronegative for Borrelia-Burgdorferi because of their immunodeficiency. And so that's the one time that having a negative antibody test does not rule out Lyme disease. It's within particularly the neurologic form. And so those are our syndromes we see. That's how we try to make the diagnosis of the treatments I've already mentioned. Are there other drugs other than tetracycline? Sure. Uh, penicillin, uh, particularly in high levels, because remember this organism is often deeply seated in tissues because the tick attaches, it stays there for, and for probably 12, 24 hours before it releases the organism into the horse. It moves mostly through connective tissue and then goes to these different organs that are involved, either synovial membranes, the spinal cord, the brain, the eye, stays in the skin, producing the pseudolymphoma, things like that. But the, um, the organism is uh, somewhat protected because it's in these difficult to get to sites with antimicrobials. And that's why the treatment eradicating the organism has not been easy in the horse, nor is it uh, that true in other species too. Uh, but early treatment uh, of infection is important because you can actually be more successful treating it before the organism has a chance to move to kind of privileged sites in the body. And that's why things like penicillin, uh, beta-lactams, uh, safety-fewer might work quite well in the early stages of the infection. Uh, but in the later stages, uh, you need probably more lipid-soluble drugs to get into those uh, difficult-to-reach tissues. Now, in the early stage of infections, though, we probably, most people don't notice anything wrong with the horse. It's unfortunately only when it gets into these specific sites and produces its signs and at that point, they're usually chronic as opposed to acute infections, and they're more difficult to actually eliminate the organism. But it can be done with long-term antimicrobial therapy. Uh, trying to think what else I'd want to add on treatments. Uh, ancillary treatments are important. Uh, I mean, NSAIDs certainly for the lame horses. There is really no evidence that corticosteroids are beneficial for treating Lyme disease in other species. That being said, when the nervous tissue or the eye is involved, 
that those are such critical sites in the body and they do not respond well to inflammation for obvious reasons that we all know. And with those diseases, we might tend to use some corticosteroids just to try to control the inflammation while we're trying to eradicate the uh, organism itself. And then uh, prognosis uh, for the lame horses, uh, hyperstatic horses uh, that don't have obvious other CNS signs. Uh, we think the treatments can be uh, good in many cases, but what we like to do is kind of follow the serology and number one, get a, a response to treatment clinically, a clinical response to treatment, and then follow the serology to make sure the serology is declining. And ideally we'd like to see it get down to negative levels. And sometimes that's almost cost prohibitive because you're looking at maybe three months or more of antimicrobial therapy. But uh, to really be certain, because I've seen so many cases where they're treated for six weeks, the antibody level begins to decline week four, it declines at week six or week eight, and then treatment stops, and then the antibody starts going back up. Now that's not always recrudescence of the same infection because when horses are infected with Lyme, they can actually be reinfected with other ticks carrying the organisms sometimes too. They don't always have protective antibody from the uh, uh, previous infection. And that leads me to a point which has been uh, some confusion to everyone. And that is uh, many of you are familiar with the multiplex uh, ELISA that's performed here at Cornell. And the multiplex ELISA uh, detects antibody against the OSP-A antigen, which is a surface antigen. All, actually, all three of the antigens that I'm going to mention are surface antigen. But the OSP-A was thought to be something that the body didn't respond to because the, organi the, the uh, organism itself uh, did not express that in infection for protective reasons of the organism. Uh, so when you found a, a high OSP-A, everybody said, oh, it's got to be vaccination because the vaccines are mostly based upon OSPE antigen because the OSPE antibody does seem to be moderately protective. And I'll talk about that in just a second. But what I wanna to allude to here is that when you see a high OSPE, it's not always vaccination titer. Some horses will develop very high antibody against OSPE with natural infection. And I'm gonna say something here that's an observation of mine that I only have observational evidence of, which is a lot of the cases for Lyme disease, observational evidence. And that is some of the best, so-called best, or I guess the most clear-cut Lyme cases that I've seen in a horse have been some horses that had a high OSPE. So I don't know what it is about having a naturally OSPE antibody following a Borrelia infection that in my opinion seems to increase the risk of actually having clinical disease. Whereas most horses with other antibody for Borrelia, uh, most of them are clinically normal. Most horses are uh, asymptomatic, most of the cases are. And then that multiplex also detects the antibody against the OFC, which is another surface antigen. And that is associated with more uh, recent infections. And then there's also antibody against OSPs F. These are surface antigen outer surface uh, antigens, that's the OS part of it. And the F is associated more with chronic infections. Now, if you're using a little IDEX, C6, the C6 correlates pretty well 
with the OSPs F. So it's somewhere between acute and more chronic, the C6 is. It's not exactly like the OSP F, but very close to it. And uh, what else on Lyme disease could I mention uh, here that I haven't covered? Uh, tick control. Uh, tick control, we really need better tick control in horses because of the fact that ticks are spreading, more horses get infected, and whether it's global warming or what, uh, the ticks seem to be on horses almost all year round now. Whereas previously it was uh, spring, uh, fall uh, problem in the Northeast, but now we are seeing it almost all year round. And so we need better tick control. Pyrimethamines uh, are the, probably uh, the primary uh, drug uh, that's used to help control ticks. There is one or two approved products uh, for horses. Uh, one is actually produced by Merck, who is sponsoring this. It's called Ultra Boss. It's a poron. Uh, now, you want to be a little bit careful because it can't, uh, uh, you probably just want to pour it on the main because most of the ticks, the most common site, are the main uh, underneath the jaw. Uh, down on the uh, pectoral area, midline, and tailhead, some of the really common places we see it. So you probably want to only apply this at those sites. And it's uh, really not well confirmed how long the application may protect against the uh, ticks attaching to the horse itself. But uh, we need better tick control. Some people have been very clever to develop uh, flea collars, I mean, flea and tick collars from dogs. Uh, attaching some of them together and then putting them around the horse's neck. There, there's all kinds of clever people out there that have figured some ways to try to control ticks and horses, but we need uh, better tick control. There's no doubt about that. Uh, that's, I think, about it. Oh, vaccination. I need to mention vaccination. Sorry. There are no equine approved vaccines as of today. Uh, there's a lot of vaccine use in horses with the canine vaccines. Uh, we know that they will produce antibody in many of the horses that are vaccinated, but certainly not all. We've had some horses vaccinated a couple times with the dog vaccine, even with a double dose of it. And then you check their multiplex ELISA and they don't have really any rise in antibody. So some horses just do not respond to the canine vaccine with the appropriate antibody response, but uh, many do. And is the antibody protective? Well, the vaccines are mostly based upon OSPA. And the OSPA antibody is thought to be probably the most protective antibody. Not the only protective one, but the most protective one. So the dog vaccines, if the horse responds with a nice antibody titer, they probably are protective against Lyme disease. Now, they won't affect tick attachment or anything. So they're not tick control, they're just Borrelia control. Uh, but you need to have a fairly high titer, and we recently published some work on that to show that the higher the titer, the more effective they are at preventing the Borrelia infection. This was in vitro work we did using different titer OSPE with live Borrelia burgdorferi in the laboratory and neutralization of the organism. Uh, but the biggest problem we've had with the canine vaccines, other than some horses not responding, is the fact that the half-life is short-lived. It's almost like the half-life of IgG. So the horse gets vaccinated, a couple a series of vaccines, the antibody level to Ospego is really high, and within three months, it's back down again. 
So since ticks are causing a problem year round, that's a problem. You'd almost have to boost them three or four times a year to maintain those high ospate tigers. Now, if you're in an area where ticks are mostly in the spring and then fall of the year, then you might want to kind of uh, uh, gear your vaccination strategy uh, for those seasons of the year when you see more of the ticks on the horses. There's a lot of work we need to do. Um, don't think I'll be doing it, but hopefully somebody will. As far as uh, better tick control, better uh, identification of the clinical signs of Lyme disease, better ways to confirm Lyme disease, and uh, then probably better vaccines and then better treatment. So the whole gamut of things, we need some help. And right now, there's not a lot of research dollars for that. So I've told veterinarians that we're going to be learning on a case-to-case base. So if you have a good case of Lyme disease and you can prove it and there's something interesting about it, you should write it up as a case report. Because really, and unfortunately, we're almost going to be learning case report by case report as opposed to some good big clinical studies or research uh, studies because there's just not enough money out there to support that. Today's Disease Du Jour podcast is brought to you by Merck Animal Health, the makers of prestige vaccines, Banamine, Panicure, Regimate, Protozil, and other trusted equine health solutions. Merck Animal Health works for you and for horses. Learn more about Merck Animal Health's comprehensive portfolio of products, as well as their ongoing investment in our industry, profession, and community at MerckAnimalHealthUSA.com. So that's uh, Lyme disease. Uh, I don't know, Kimberly, do you have any specific questions on Lyme before I move on to anaplas? No, sir, I'm learning a lot on this, and it's a great refresher for some other things. So thank you very much. Well, it's my pleasure. So the second, uh, and a better recognized disease, to be honest with you, in horses associated with uh, tick-borne infections, and that's anaplasmosis. And anaplasmosis is caused by anaplasma phagocytophilia. It used to be known as Ehrlichia equi, it also, the disease was known as granulocytic ehrlichiosis, and the granulocytic part hasn't changed. The, uh, it's changed from ehrlichia to anaplas. And so the organism, the anaplasmocytophilia, infects granulocytes. Uh, the ticks attach, once again, it's spread by the same ticks that spread uh, Borrelia burgdorferi, uh, the agent of Lyme disease. And so many of these horses are infected with both organisms at the same time. As a matter of fact, when we see an antibody, when we find a horse with anaplas, there's probably a 30% chance it's also gonna be infected with Borrelia because many of the ticks are co-infected. And the, once the tick attach and releases the anaplas into the uh, horse's body, then it tends to uh, get into the blood within a matter of four or five days and become bacteremic day five, day seven, and the organism can be found in uh, neutrophils and eosinophils, which are granulocytes. And that organism can be seen uh, in the clinical path labs or with white stains or quick diff stains to uh, find the organism within these cells. And that can confirm the diagnosis. If you see the morula, these little uh, parts of the organism, uh, developmental stages that are in the granulocytes, 
and you have clinical signs and that, that in itself confirms the diagnosis. Now, the clinical signs of anaplasts are much better described than for Lyme disease. I mean, it's no doubt that our clinical science, we have enough information, there are experimental studies on this that give us a wealth of confidence on how to diagnose anaplasts, whereas we don't have that wealth of confidence for Lyme disease. For anaplasmosis, the horses are usually febrile. Uh, adult horses are more severely affected. Young animals, yearlings can be infected but they clinical signs usually subtle or non-existent, uh, non-clinical in younger horses, but horses over four years of age uh, are most severely affected. And those horses will have fever. They'll often, but not always have leg edema. Sometimes it's just a swelling of the fetlock down. Uh, they can be stiff and some of that's from the leg edema. Uh, some of it may be for other reasons. Uh, the horses are often jaundice and they may have petechiations. And we do have a neurologic form of anaplasm also. It's poorly uh, documented what the pathophysiology of the neurologic syndrome is, but it's probably related to the vasculitis because really anaplasm, it's a bloodborne infection uh, after the tick exposure. And so you get a vasculitis damage to endothelial cells. Platelets tend to clump and be sequestered in spleen, et cetera. And uh, the, uh, so, some, so it's a little bit like purpur hemorrhagica. It's a painful leg edema. It's a vasculitis is what occurs in these horses. So the clinical signs are pretty well documented. So you'll occasionally hear of some unusual clinical signs, but they're rare. One I'll share with you because it may help some people. And that is uh, adult horses with fever that become neurologic we immediately think of EHV1, herpes myelitis. And so, but anaplast can do that. It can mimic herpes. Uh, it's usually a single horse, fever, progressive neurologic disease to the point they become recumbent. And of course, everybody at that point is really scared that it's EHV1. But if you do a few little investigative things. Number one, you're gonna to have to rule out herpes. So you'll have to do a nasal swab or a blood and DNA uh, PCR to rule out herpes. But you'll find anaplasm in the blood of those horses. Uh, also, if you look at the white blood cell uh, picture, uh, you'll often find uh, thrombocytopenia. I don't know what percentage of anaplast horses have low platelet counts, but it's really high. And so if you have a febrile horse with thrombocytopenia, regardless of the clinical signs, think anaplast first, because anaplast responds so well to antimicrobial therapy. And um, that therapy, antimicrobial therapy is usually the tetracyclines, once again. Oxytet IV is probably best, but in practice, sometimes it's not practical to give IV oxytet once or twice daily for five to seven days, which would be ideal. So, you know, you can give them Oxytet IV for a couple of days if you can and switch them over to Doxy. If you're using Doxy or Minocycline, then uh, you probably want to treat them for a more, more prolonged time, at least 14 days in that case, whereas with Tetracycline, maybe uh, seven to 10 days would be sufficient. And maybe even a shorter treatment period would be. Uh, the disease is actually not life-threatening except for those rare cases of uh, neurologic disease or uh, 
or myopathy. Uh, most horses with anaplasia, in spite of having the leg edema, the fevers, the petechiations, the icterus, even if you didn't treat them, they would mostly get better. But we like to, you know, decrease suffering and pain in animals, and this is such an easy treatment. The only adverse effects I've had from oxytetracycline, you do have to be careful, make sure they're hydrated, or else there's a risk of nephrotoxicity and renal failure. And then, of course, probably the biggest problem is make sure it goes IV as opposed to perivascular and get a thrombophlebitis or a peri, uh, thrombophlebitis uh, associated with a chemical reaction of drugs. So you have to be careful of those, but otherwise the treatments are fairly safe. And these horses get better usually within 24 to 36 hours. Now, you can still find the organism uh, PCR sometimes upwards to 48 hours after you start treatment because that's probably, it may just be the dead organism with the DNA still within the granulocytes, I don't know. So, but you'll find the organism positive, you'll find PCR positive blood sometimes, even after 36 hours of treatment. And uh, what else on anaplasmosis? I've covered that fairly well, then, you know, control of it, it goes back to tick control. And, you know, we already talked about that. We need help there, we need help. And I've encouraged uh, pharmaceutical companies, you know, to uh, help us with better tick control as they can in horses. I mean, it's such a big uh, market in dogs that uh, I think it would also be a relatively good market for pharmaceutical companies and horses too. realize that we just don't have the number of horses that dogs are in North America. And let me think if there's anything else I had. Uh, I got a couple notes here on uh, anaplasmosis. Uh, I mentioned thrombocytopenia. Oh, a lot of the horses with anaplasmosis are uh, lymphopenic. So you might have normal lymphocyte counts, you know, four, three, four thousand. A lot of these horses are less than 1,000. It's not always there. Some of them are neutropenic also. But the thrombocytopenia is often kind of a diagnostic clue in a febrile horse. And um, a lot of people don't do a diagnostic testing for anaplas because um, they just make a clinical diagnosis based on clinical signs and response to oxytet or doxycycline. And that's probably a correct diagnosis in 90% of the cases. If it looks like anaplas, it's probably anaplas. It's as simple as that. And so a lot of people don't bother with PCRs on the blood or even uh, antibody. Antibody for anaplas can be tricky too, because uh, IDEX, of course, in their 4DX, they have anaplas phagocytophilia, little uh, markers for antibody. But in horses, it may require 10 or more days to develop antibody against it that can be detected. So if you're seeing a horse that's febrile and you think it has anaplas, that may be day seven or eight or nine of the infection. That's kind of the incubation period, somewhere between day five or seven on up to day 14. And so if you see a horse with an early incubation period of day five or seven or eight, uh, they're gonna be negative on the IDEX uh, uh, antibody test, uh, but they'll be positive on the PCR of the blood if you do that. But so there's different ways you can confirm the diagnosis. The PCR in the blood certainly is the best one. The antibody can be confusing. I think I'll just end there. But most people just treat the horses and I think that's certainly appropriate to do that. Uh, anything else there? 
I think not. Uh, Kimberly, do you have any questions on anaplasmosis in horses? Anything that I, you know I left out or anything? No, it's just a, a great reminder as a differential diagnosis. So, Oh, yeah. With differentials, you know, fever, uh, you know, you got to consider Potomacor's fever. Oh, I'm glad you asked that question, too, because febrile horse without other clinical signs, febrile depressed, could be anaplast, adult horse, could be Potomacor's fever, could be a lot of other things. Many times we don't even figure out what's causing fever. Certainly respiratory pathogens, all those things should be considered. If they have leg edema, painful leg edema and fever, you got to think about perpohemorrhagica, which is not always, but most commonly associated with recent strep exposure. And so those would be some differentials, uh, but there's somewhere I was going with this. Oh, I know what I want to say. Uh, in our part of the country, the Northeast, and many other parts uh, that have of horse fever, when you find a horse fever, uh, fever of unknown origin, in other words, there's no obvious clinical signs, just febrile, particularly if it's in the April to November timeframe, people just treat them with uh, tetracycline because with Potomac horse fever, you have to treat them early. With anaplasmosis, as I mentioned, it's relatively a non-lethal disease. They'd get better on their own if you didn't treat them. We still recommend treating for the reasons I mentioned. But with some of course fever, if you don't treat them early, the risk of founder increases. The longer you wait to treat a Potomac horse fever case, the more likely it's going to founder. And of course, that's probably the most common cause of death in Potomac horse fever cases is euthanasia due to laminitis. And the point I wanted to make is I have never seen a horse with anaplasmosis founder. Now, don't jinx me. And I'm sure it's probably happened. And somebody listening to this says, oh, we had one. But it's a rare occurrence. I can all, I'm almost certain of that, that they would founder with anaplast. But if it's PHF and you don't treat them early, hmm, it could be a bad deal. So uh, other tick-borne, I'll end with just a few other tick-borne pathogens uh, that uh, we know about. Certainly babesiosis, which is Babesia cavalli or Tularia equi, Tularia equi being the ones more likely to produce chronic infection, chronic carriers, uh, and has snuck into the country mostly from Mexico on occasion, and then those horses have been shipped. It's spread by ticks, a variety of ticks, and it's spread from horse to horse uh, if a positive horse gets in the country. And we've all read reports of that coming into Texas and Oklahoma and Colorado, and then horses being shipped up to Minnesota and places like that. And, uh, and there are several different kinds of ticks that can transmit these organisms too. And so there's a lot of uh, effort to try to keep those horses out of the country. I, the only case of Babesia I've ever seen was when I was a veteran student at the University of Georgia, because at that time they still had Babesiosis in Florida. It's uh, slightly endemic, uh, low-grade endemic at that time. But really it's a, it's a disease that we should and usually do not have in North America. And there are some treatments for it. And people, if, uh, you know, years ago, people said once the horse gets infected, unless they clear their self, which they will with the bees, Kabali, that they're gonna be chronically infected. But there are a group at Washington State and others have figured out there are antimicrobial treatments that can uh, rid the horse uh, from being a chronic carrier. So that, that we have learned. 
Some other diseases, tick-borne diseases that have been reported in horses, but the first two I will mention have only been single case reports. So we don't know how important they are. But uh, Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, uh, which is mostly spread by the Lone Star Tick or the American Dog Tick. And it runs uh, kind of a belt all the way from Oklahoma, Colorado, coming east through Tennessee into North Carolina, Missouri, and a center there too. So it has a little belt the way it runs. Mm -hmm. And uh, there is a recent report from North Carolina State about a horse that had clinical signs associated with Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, which is uh, mostly fever and some other kind of non-specific signs of depression, et cetera. And they were able to confirm that by finding uh, the organism uh, in that horse. And so that's, will we see more cases of it? I don't know. That was a, you know, isolated case report. And once again, these isolated case reports are good because it's, it's just not a lot of money there to study tick-borne pathogens in horses. And then the other report uh, of a tick-borne disease is uh, Bartonella hansesley. Uh, this is uh, an organism uh, that's mostly noted to be spread by fleas uh, in cats. And people can get this also, but there is a report of a weanland foal having hepatitis, that the organism was found within a biopsy of the liver and the uh, weanling responded to antimicrobial therapy, which would be mostly uh, similar for all these different diseases. Doxy and the tetracyclines are preferred treatments for most all these uh, tick-borne uh, infections and works actually fairly well for Babesia, although it's not the drug of choice for Babesiosis. So those are a couple isolated diseases that have been mentioned, Bartonella and Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. There are some other organisms we have found in ticks, but we haven't had any confirmed cases in horses yet. And there's a Babesia microti, which is organism, which is fairly common in ticks in certain parts of the US. And the one that's uh, the most concern, I think, to people and would be concerned in horses if they actually got infected and showed clinical signs. And that's this Powassan virus. Now this is a tick-borne encephalitis is what it is. So wow. it's, it's a virus that's uh, very deadly in people. Uh, we see it here in New York State. It's been reported in other parts of the Northeast into also into Minnesota and Wisconsin and up into Canada. And the tick apparently only needs to be attached for just a short period of time, like 30 minutes and they can spread this virus, which is different than what we see with anaplas, which probably takes a few hours, and then Borrelia, which probably takes uh, 12, 24 or more hours for the tick to spread the organism into the horse itself. So uh, experimental studies have been done with Powassan and horses when they inject the virus into the central nervous system, into the CSF, the horses do get encephalitis but there have not been any, to my knowledge, actual uh, natural occurring cases of that so far. And I hope it stays that way too. But this is a really scary uh, tick-borne disease right now in the Northeast because of the short time the tick needs to be attached and the fact the mortality rate's really high. It's a tick-borne encephalitis virus is what it is, uh, really. And so those are uh, 
some of the, there are a couple other uh, uh, Borrelia organisms I didn't mention, but we haven't found those to produce disease in horses yet. There's a Borrelia uh, myomotai, uh, uh, and then there's uh, another Borrelia, which was discovered at the uh, Mayo Clinic, which uh, actually will cross-react with the Borrelia burgdorferi on the antibody test. But we haven't found horses to be infected with it so far, but we know it's in these same areas, Northeast, Minnesota, uh, Wisconsin, and we haven't had clinical cases, and I'm not sure we've even had horses that are antibody positive to it. Uh, although it will cross-react with the Lyme organism, so you, you wouldn't be able to tell that on most of the antibody tests since it cross-reacts. So that's kind of a brief review of what I know, and we have a lot of work to do, a lot of things we don't know, and certainly a lot of things I don't know. So thanks for spending time today. Well, it, speaking of things that you're uh, curious about, is there any research you're working on that you'd like to share with us? Well, unfortunately, I'm kind of into my academic career, and uh, you know, we, we most recently did the uh, in vitro uh, the efficacy of OSPE antibody in vitro. Uh, that was published within the last year, so we got that completed. It took us probably three years to complete that. Seems like we're always slow with doing things, but we did add that to show that there is a uh, correlation between the level of the OSPE antibody and its sidle effect on the organism uh, in vitro. Uh, we did some work recently uh, on uh, Ceftifur and the uh, in vitro sensitivity of Borrelia burgdorferi to Ceftifur and published that. Uh, that also took a while to get out, but we finally got it done. And we found out that the organism is super sensitive to Ceftifur, which is the, what's in Naxal exceed. And uh, probably should discuss that just briefly because uh, given exceed, you know, once a week or so would be easy to do. And the organism is super sensitive to the septifure, but the levels that are in the blood with exceed are generally low. Levels, it's not lipid soluble. Levels that get in connective tissue in places the Borrelia might reside would be even lower then. And so is it possible a seed could work possible, but it probably wouldn't be my uh, first line treatment simply because you just don't get high enough levels in the tissues with it, but it's possible it could work. And uh, there's no doubt that in vitro, uh, the drug is extremely effective uh, at killing the organism in vitro, better than penicillin. It was actually better than doxycycline. Wow. Uh, yes, in vitro. But the problem is getting the drug to the site of infection uh, is, it would not be easy with that. And other things uh, we'd like to do, we're still doing some work to try to figure out why some horses don't respond to the vaccines, the dog vaccines, whereas 85% of them do respond. I'm guessing 15% just don't get an antibody response that we can measure. Uh, we are uh, trying to think if there's anything. We're always looking to prove cases. Because once again, I would encourage practitioners to help us there because they're the people who are probably going to add the most because we're going to learn case report by case report. So whenever I think I can maybe add something to the literature about a new clinical syndrome associated with Lyme disease, I'll try to find money to do further testing and confirm that's actually what it yeah. is. 
And so clinical cases, some more on vaccination. Uh, we don't have anything really active going on on treatment studies right now. Uh, but uh, that's a few things I'm still very interested in. Thank you, Dr. Divers, for being our guest on today's episode of Disease Du Jour. It was certainly enlightening to me, and I'm sure our veterinary audience will really enjoy all the, the insights that you've shared. And we'd like to thank our listeners for joining us today on Disease Du Jour, and a special thanks to our 2020 sponsor, Merck Animal Health. Please listen, rate uh, previous and future episodes of Disease Du Jour on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. Follow Equimanagement on Facebook, or you can send me an email at kbrown at aimmedia.com. <laughs>